What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week we had on Nandu on a law of Canaan Partners. Canaan is an early stage fund that has a portfolio that speaks for itself. Within its role, Nandu focuses on enterprise technology companies, and in his free time, he shares a lot of his lessons and learnings through writing. In this talk, we discuss the process of learnings as a VC, the rise of data-driven companies, themes worth monitoring within data infrastructure, and preempting rounds and escaping the competitive fundraising process. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. We got one of the homies in here, a Chicago native, Nandu Analal, one of the cooler dudes I've met in VC for sure. You're just talking about how how dope Chicago is in the summers. And yeah, we're just honored to have you on here, man. To kick things off, how about you give us a quick overview of who you are, how you got here, and then maybe we'll talk a bit about Canaan, which is a phenomenal firm. Awesome. Yeah, no, that sounds great. This is gonna be this is gonna be fun. I'm excited. But yeah, I, I guess the the quick background on myself, like we chatted about, I grew up just outside Chicago. Stayed pretty close by for college. I went to University of Illinois. I studied engineering there. And I think all through that time, I, I had very little interest in tech or investing. I, I think I just thought like math was pretty cool, and a lot of these optimization problems that that was more or less like why I chose my major. And then pretty quickly, I was like, oh, I'm gonna go all in on consulting. I really like the project-based work. So that's where I ended up starting my career. I started in Chicago at a consulting firm. It was super cool, but it was like getting exposure to a bunch of different things eventually led me to be like, oh, I wanna explore tech a little bit more. Obviously at that time, things like Airbnb and Uber were super popular and I was using them. So I was like, okay, it seems like something's definitely going on here. So I'd like to learn more. So after just reading a bunch of Stratechery and listening to a bunch of podcasts, I decided I'm gonna go move to San Francisco. I started uh, a new job at a company called Thumbtack in their product org. And pretty immediately I was like, okay, this is great. I definitely want to be around startups, around tech. And not too long after that, I joined Canaan at the end of 2019, where I basically focus on enterprise investing. Yo, how'd that come about? Like, how'd you meet the Canaan folks? Oh yeah, it's a super, <laughs> it's like a, it's a fairly underwhelming story of I, I basically just cold applied. I, was, I didn't know too many people. I knew one person in venture, didn't know anyone specifically at Canaan. So I figured I, I used to actually spend a lot of time. I would just go through LinkedIn. I would search certain queries to find who's hiring in venture and stuff. And after doing that for a good amount of time, I, I just applied cold. And over, the, over time, I met like a ton of the team and got um, really excited about it. But yeah, not a super typical where I like networked my way in. It was, I, I don't know that I would recommend that strategy if you really want to work in venture. 
feel it. When you got your level of talent, sometimes the uh, conversion rate's a lot higher. But cool, man. Canaan's been around since like the 80s. Y'all got over 200 exits under your belt. And I think y'all are at like 6 billion plus AUM now. How have y'all stayed on top for this long? (laughs) Like where are y'all at today? And what do you folks like? Give us a quick download. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the history is pretty interesting. Yeah, like you said, in 1987, they spun out of like GE's venture capital arm and have basically been independent, er, independently investing since then. We're investing out of our 12th fund now and committed to like the early stage. So we'll do like seed, series A, series B. And yeah, the interesting thing is also there's certainly a lot of variety. We have a whole host of life sciences investors and the tech team where I sit. And so I think some of the things that stick out to me is like having a broad sector focus and like a lot of resources gives us the opportunity to invest in certain things like having a robust like marketing function that we can spread across our our full team and portfolio. But then we try to balance that with having like sector specific deal teams and conversations around how do we be the best enterprise software investors versus the best consumer investors and letting individuals have a little bit of liberty there. So I, I think part of that plays a role. And then I think the other thing that I think is pretty interesting is a lot of the folks at Canaan have just been here for a really long time. And I think it is extremely valuable in this type of business, in my opinion, to have folks who have been at the same place for 10 plus years, 15 plus years, 20 plus years, like that kind of stuff is certainly a big part of, I think, the success of being able to move from generation to generation. Really, man, you all have done it better, better than almost anyone. You're definitely top tier at it. So keep crushing it, please. I want to talk about another institution that you're part of, given again that you're from Chicago and you're a real one. You went to U of I, which most people don't know, but is one of the best engineering schools in the world and has a ton of huge names come out of there frequently. Some folks who are really popular in our realm would be like Mark Andreessen, Larry Ellison, Nandu Analaw, Max Lepchen, <laughs> and a few others. Can you talk a bit about what makes the U of I, I guess, you know, like the university as a whole, but more specifically the, the engineering program so special? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Obviously, a lot of far smarter people than me have, have come out of the, there and done some super interesting things. I think, I think one of the interesting things is Illinois has adapted over time and doubled down on whatever is important in the economy and the world. A lot of roots around like, agriculture innovation and like agriculture meets engineering and then like with the industrial revolution moving more into things like mechanical engineering and and doing a lot of work in that space and like how in this kind of like digital era the electrical engineering departments and the computer science departments have certainly got a ton of investment as well so i think like any other business longevity is is a lot easier when you read the room and think about where to invest. So I think a lot of it is just continuing to invest in the new areas that they think are important in the future. I think the it, it probably is more, I think a lot of people there value like research versus purely commercial applications of engineering, which is an interesting dynamic. I think it kind of comes from not being it's not like they're right next to a, a New York or like a San Francisco, like a huge 
hub, which I think actually makes it a unique institution uh, where it's not necessarily tied to one commercial sector, for example. Got you. Makes a lot of sense. I also think that from my personal experience, one, you all kill it across that. And it's actually very competitive when you get in and because of the exact reasons you spoke on. But two, you all actually balance a lot of fun. Like I used to visit there to see some of my best friends and my high school girlfriend. And it'd be like my homies in the engineering and business school, like spraying the class, stressing out. But then as soon as 11 o'clock hits, just like having as much fun as they can. Yeah, um, that's, yeah. When you're at the end of high school and all that, when you're making these decisions. It's a no-brainer for me. Like, I want to study engineering. I want to get, like, the college experience and all that. And on those two things, it certainly knocks out of the park. So it was, it was a lot of fun. Most definitely. Let's see. So you did consulting and, and worked on Thumbtack's product team. And you, I remember we talked about it a bit. And when you were there, you led their strategic projects and helped build out their product roadmap. So we don't have as many people on our podcast who come from this particular background, who are in PM roles before this, nor have done as many go-to-market initiatives for a ton of companies as you. Can you talk about how that's impacted your approach to investing in VC? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. So when I started in consulting, it was very go-to-market focused. It was a lot of like building out super large sales organizations, often in like health. But I think like the thing that applies super well to tech and enterprise sales maybe is just how important it is to have a well-oiled go-to-market machine. You need to have the right types of people in the right roles um, and you need to pay them on the right compensation structure. And, and so I think I certainly gained an appreciation of like how hard it is to like get all of those things to come together well. And so I, I always thought that was a super interesting place to start. But I definitely was very intentional about, oh, I spent so much time on go-to-market in this consulting job, but I don't really spend any time with products. So when I got to Thumbtack and I was in the product org, it was very different. Software is also a very different animal. So seeing what the product development lifecycle looks like and, and how cross-functional all these tech companies are today was like a really interesting place to spend time just from getting a sense of what it takes to build a high growth business. But yeah, I, I think the other things are like, I would say I would classify some of the experience I had before this as like fairly broad, fairly like generalist. So I think I'm certainly no expert on any one domain, but seeing how important it is to have all of these things come together certainly gives me some empathy for how hard it is to build these businesses. Feel it, man. Feel it. I just, my thought on it is like when talking to you about investing and thinking about your path, I don't actually meet many people in venture who come from the tech side or the product build out part of things. Like most of us understand go to market strategies, but not many of us really dig into the tech stack. So you having that experience is huge. And actually being able to break down our own map. That, that kind of uh, makes me think about how we should probably put more guys out on that. <laughs> um, maybe you can help us. You want to talk a little bit about your process of learning as a VC. I know you actually study and think about how that works versus just diving into it. What are your thoughts on that space or on that topic? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, and I think it's very related to the question you just asked before around like having these experiences, like how do you leverage them in VC and stuff? And I think very candidly, it's like, you work a couple years in a couple different jobs and you have some baseline understanding of what's important and how some of these things look, but you're not like 
you're not going to be like the guy who explains growth marketing to everyone or anything like that. So I think this process of learning is like one of the most, at least in my opinion, I think it's like the most important thing for at least junior investors is like, how can you set up a system where you can ideally like go learn about anything, whether it's like a market or a company or, or whatever it is. So I try to, I try to get more neat about how I think about some of that, but usually it starts with trying to collect information. I, I think so much of it is just like spending time on Google, on Twitter, on Reddit, and a bunch of different websites and trying to get a sense of like, how do people think about a certain space or a trend? What are people saying? And I just collect all of that, spend a ton of time trying to digest it. And then I think the next phase is I usually move into more of like socialization. That's where it's helpful to talk to like other investors or founders trying to solve a very relevant problem or people who are out working at a company that are experiencing this problem. I think talking about it is really crystallizes it, at least for me. And then I think the last step for me has been more around like trying to write things down. I always find that it's very easy to talk about a lot of topics. And then when you're forced to write it down, you realize like how much harder it is to be like coherent and at all insightful. So I, I think just, I'm, I'm still very much in the process of figuring out what the best way to do some of this stuff is. But I think that's something that I continue to invest in. And I like to find people who are similarly interested in kind of refining that process. Got you. One topic that you've gotten really smart on, I'm assuming through one of these types of processes, is like the full data stack landscape. You were like a super, super interesting piece about it earlier this year. Can you tell us a bit about the, the rise of the data company and how you're seeing them get distribution and go to market, given the increasing pool of both customer segments and competitors? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you're exactly right. I went on one of these kind of like research projects that it's and ended up learning quite a bit and continuing to invest in there. But yeah, no, I think like one of the interesting ideas is like the, yeah, the rise of the data company being businesses are like increasingly built around like their data infrastructure being really strong. And if you think historically, like a lot of the value of data has been around like making really good decisions. I, I think that's what I did in consulting is you get all this data, you make some decisions, you make some recommendations, but now like we're now seeing more and more companies adopt like an Uber type of model where it's their core product is very tied to how well they can like digest and make meaningful uh, insights out of data often in like real time. So I, I think like this whole trend of data not just being for like decision making and analytics on like after the fact and moving to like the front of the house is a super interesting trend and obviously all the right things are happening around like it being cheaper to store and process data you've got more and more people who are becoming like data literate and picking up things like SQL or picking up, I don't know, different no code tools that allow them to manipulate data in some way. So I think all the right things are happening where you're going to continue seeing a ton of investment like we've seen in this space. I think you're to your maybe second point around like distribution. Yeah, that's certainly anytime you have a, an area that's, that seems really exciting and, and, all the trends are lining up, it, it becomes increasingly hard to stand out. So 
Yeah, the two things I guess I'm paying attention to here is like one, more companies, especially around data, trying to go like bottoms up, sell to developers or data scientists. Open source is certainly like one specific like mechanism to try and do that. But I think more broadly, like product marketing is like this other function that I think becomes increasingly important when you've got more and more companies that seem to do very similar things. I think like you're going to see more early stage companies invest in having really like clear product marketing. Cause I think that once you can claim a new category, it, it really does give you a big brand benefit. Factual, very, very factual. Can you tell us a, a little bit about the similarities and differences between data warehouses and data lakes? I remember reading a really interesting piece in your, in your article about that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, this question, it, it gets more complicated like each year just because I think both of those, both of the, the vendors in and around those spaces, they come up with new terms. They're both in this fight to claim that they can do everything that the other one can. But I, I think broadly speaking, warehouses started off being more around like structured and semi-structured data. It's really what I had talked about around being built for like analytics and like decision-making. The language you would associate with a data warehouse is very much like SQL. And so that's usually where an analyst will spend a lot of their time. That's where the snowflakes and the big queries of the world play. And then I think on, on the other side, something like a data lake is really just about like very cheap storage that any type of data can go into. And so often I think people think of it as like a staging area and it'll, you'll take some of the data in there and you'll toss it into a data science workflow or a separate analytics workflow. And so you, I, I think one of the most interesting things that I'm going to continue to watch is you're going to see Snowflake really pushing this idea of like why the warehouse is super important and how they're going to encroach on the data lake. And, and alternatively, I think you're going to have people like Databricks who are around the data lake ecosystem try to pitch to you and investors that their worldview is more interesting. And so I, I think that's going to be an area that gets more interesting as both those comp companies end up public pretty soon. Got it. I think that makes a ton of sense. There was, there was one other piece in there that I thought was fascinating. You talked a little bit about some of the themes that you were working on within the data infrastructure piece. Can you dive into those? Just some of our audience who either invest in that space or are new to it and can understand where it should be looking. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so uh, a couple of different pockets. One, I think like anything that is solving this pain point around like data engineering is going to be super interesting. Uh, I think if you look today, like it's one of data engineers super in demand is a pretty niche skill set. But if you buy the thesis that people are creating more data and everybody wants to access it, like data engineers are often the people with a specialized skill set that can like move and manipulate data in these complex systems within an org. So it's very hard to hire those people. There, There's only so many of them because it's a relatively new profession. So I think one thesis that I'm exploring is like companies that either give data engineers more leverage where they're able to accomplish more with, with less. And I think a lot of those look like workflow automation type of tools. But then I also think there's the possibility of what can you do to hand off some of these like data engineering tasks to other people, whether it's like analysts or like data scientists, which tend to be like more plentiful within an organization. So I think 
that's one theme. Certainly looking at a lot of like ML related infrastructure. I think there's a lot there. Like you see a lot of companies that are taking it from the angle of we are trying to open like the ML black box. Like how do you explain what's really happening under these models? It's going to be interesting. And then there's a whole governance aspect to that as well. So I think that's, there's a lot of tools there, but I continue to think that as more companies become data companies, like investment into the ML toolkit is just going to go through the roof. Yeah, I think we have no choice. It's, it's like the obvious step that we're, that we're taking here. Yeah. Actually, I'm going to follow you offline to talk more about this at some point. Yeah. Okay, just, just to back up, because I know this was super educational for a lot of the folks in the space or like uh, really interesting for, for the people on our, on our side of the world that love to nerd out about data infrastructure and data and whatnot. But let's change topics to something a bit more broader for our non-data infrastructure investing audience. How about we talk about the evolution of preempting rounds? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's definitely something that, you know, I haven't necessarily been in venture that long, but I think the surprising thing is even in that short period of time, it, it feels noticeably different today than it was at least when I started, where I think more and more companies are, by the time we have an initial conversation with them, they've either be, been preempted or they know that's like right around the corner. So I think it's an interesting idea. I, I think it's very much a product of there's a ton of capital and certain sectors, especially coming out of COVID, are really attractive. And to some degree, like some of them are, they're attractive and they're consensus in the sense that everyone now knows the impact that COVID had on like e-commerce, right? So a lot of people are looking in similar places. So you see this trend of more firms trying to preempt and, and escape competitive fundraise processes. I think it's hard to say that's just going to go away anytime soon. I think the interesting thing is if you believe that you're going to see, continue to see more of these preempted rounds, I think as like an investor, it's interesting to think about how do you stay competitive, right? It sounds like you need to do more of your market diligence and maybe even company diligence like before you actually meet a company because I think speed has really become like a vector that you want to do really well in as a VC firm nowadays. But yeah, I, I, it is, it's certainly like a pretty crazy idea, but I think we're seeing it in our portfolio and we see it in the companies that we chat with that more and more of them are getting preempted or, or running shortened processes. Agreed. Agreed, man. I think just the hyper competitive, hyper competitiveness of this space like not even just from VCs, but also alternative investing platforms or individuals coming into the space investing. Like it just makes sure you have to move as fast as possible. Exactly. At the end of the day, this is a service business. Like who wants slow service? I think you're on point. So I've been grilling you for a long time. How about we give you a second to ask us anything you want. And then because we haven't heard from Clay yet, we let him answer first. I'll come through and then Clay will take over for our rapid fire round. Yeah, no, that sounds great. Yeah, I guess w one thing that'd be interesting is, so you, I guess you guys talk to a lot of junior investors and pretty like geographically diverse funds are, are pretty different. Is there anything that you, like any insight you have on like, the similarities between the people maybe you've had on or you've just met that would be like non-obvious if it's like a personality trait or like a mindset, anything jump out to you from the people you've chatted with? 
Clay, you got this one. Yeah, we got this same question from Sakub um, a couple of weeks ago. And like I was coming fumbling around answering it then, but I'll try now. I think if I had to narrow it down to one personality trait, it would just be very curious about the world. And the overwhelming majority of the people that we've had on have some presence online where we're able to take some of their readings or their writings and like they've clearly spent time to build out their thoughts whether it's their medium twitter something else just because they have so many thoughts running through their brain because they're curious about other things so i think that makes it easier for us to identify who would be interesting to talk to because we have proof of work there's probably a lot of other personality traits that could describe a good portion of the people we've had on but i think curiosity is the one that comes top of mind for me what about you tyler honestly i would say a lot of the same things I think that one thing that we've noticed, and I can't really put my finger on it, is that if we look at our intro page, which I did this retrospective or retroactively, and like how they present themselves, or maybe it's the funds they're at, or their paths, or how they build out their brands, you actually see like a correlation between the people we naturally picked, or that were recommended to us like in closed conversations to like how those people react or how people react to them when they come into our Slack channel. And then I took that a step further and just started to look at their like LinkedIn, Twitters, et cetera. I I think it really just comes down to them having not even explosive personalities, but like a willingness to to put their themselves and their curiosity in front of the world. So maybe it's just like Nike mentality, like a just mentality or something like that. I think that's something that's not obvious to people that if you just take a moment to like be thoughtful in how you present yourself or just say, screw it and put out what you're thinking about. Very similar as to you, Nandu, like that data piece was phenomenal. Or even the fact that you got an adventure just by applying. I think that those things go a lot farther and the kind of people who are willing to jump off a cliff tend to, at least in terms of branding and taking steps ahead at earlier ages in life, tend to win in the tech and VC ecosystem. Yeah, that's a... Yeah, it's super interesting you say that. I think so much of it is in venture. You've got these super long feedback loops and firms aren't like, they're not like consulting firms or like banks where you have these huge classes. So there, there isn't a status quo on like how to do things and there isn't necessarily like best practice on a lot of stuff. So it makes sense that a lot of it is just like doing something like thinking this is what you should do and then doing it. Maybe it works and maybe it doesn't, but it certainly feels feels like it makes sense to me yeah our whole thing here is that everyone in confluence was technically in the dark and our whole thesis is let's bring them all together give them all the resources let them have a place to kick it and i think the people who are trying to find their way out of the dark prior to being in confluence are the ones who are taking w's because unfortunately this is a highly fragmented space and it is a pretty isolated and oftentimes lonely space where you know unless you've been in the game as long as a canaan partner yeah. <laughs> um, you don't know if you're winning. And even if you have won a few times, you don't know if it's luck. So people want to actually hear your thoughts just to make sure that they're also thinking about things the right way. I guess with that, do you have any other questions? Uh, well, I got a, a quick one would be, and maybe someone's already asked this one, but what are your guys's uh, favorite podcasts? Just in general, the ones we've hosted. Oh no. Like uh, the ones you listen to. I listen to invest like the best pretty religiously. 
Yeah. I think the, the quality of guests there and just the, the quality of questions he asks as well. I think that's tough to beat. I like yeah, that's super high on my beat. list. I'm trying to think other ones that are like recurring for me. Honestly, I feel like I binge on that more than anything else. Tyler, what about you? Yeah, for me, like, I actually don't, I try my best not to listen to other podcasts that much in my space because like I'm monitoring our Slack channel, all these Slack channels, I'm doing these clubhouses now like of course i used to be obsessed with the one you the ones you spoke on the 20 minute vcs of the world mm-hmm. the, global, the global startup community or whatever that one's called notations is, was great obviously i've li- listened to some Andreessen things and and whatnot matt snow's great harlem's great but the truth is i listen to like completely different stuff like i listen to stuff about life like my friend bianca vivian who actually worked at morgan stanley with she has a podcast about generational anxiety and overcoming truths and realizing things within yourself. I listen to these ones where there's like the moth where people just come in and tell stories. And I love those things. Or Tyler Burton, who I believe was Kunta Kinte in Roots. Like he just reads like these really magnificent fictional books. Like that's what I, I like to use podcasts for because sometimes movies are overwhelming and podcasts are a way I can just get in my own head and escape. That's awesome, yeah. If you're looking one for one that's like more venture related that I think's flying under the radar, there's one that I started listening to recently called Capital Allocators, which is pretty cool. It's not just venture guys, like private equity and growth equity guys as well, or just traditional money managers. They have some interesting guests on there and they ask them some pretty cool questions. Awesome. Yeah. I'm gonna check it anyone, out. If Nandu or anyone listening, if you all know any like long term a holding period value investors who actually have a track record who are doing podcasts. I would love to get in tune with them, especially ones who are on the younger side of things, who work for elite institutions so they can have the skill set plus, like actually see where the world's going versus just gonna come outdated. I would love to listen to what they've got going on. And then any people who have like crypto uh, portfolios that are crushing it and can just give me like all coin recommendations so I can make okay. small bets, I would love to listen to those as well. But yeah. Clay, if you know him, I know you're an avid listener and reader. Let me know Nandu and everybody else. For sure. So with that, Clay, you want to kick us off with these uh, with these rapid fires? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so Nandu, we do these at the end. We've got five questions, all meant to be answered in two sentences or less. First one we've got, what is a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? Let's see. I think I think something that I feel like at least... A lot of people in tech and, and startups seem to, to pitch is like that everyone should angel invest. It's going gonna, it's gonna to solve all, all of your problems. And I don't necessarily have anything against it. And I think it makes sense for a lot of people. But I, I think you, you really have to think about what are your career goals and does something like angel investing get you there? Or is it, just, and is it really just because it has some sort of social currency. So I think that's one I'd probably test. Yeah, I don't think it makes sense for everyone's career goals. And I often see it touted as being the savior to everything. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. You've read the Alex Danko article about like angel investing being a new form of social currency within SF or just Bay Area in general. I think that was pretty interesting. Totally. All right. Next one in the new, or sorry, in the last year, what new belief behavior habit has most improved your life? 
Um, so I think this year I've, I've been like writing more stuff down, not like necessarily like articles and stuff, but just, I think there's like a certain monotony that I felt, especially, you know, when I was still in San Francisco and there's like the same environment, same place all the time. So I, I think like writing things down, just like things I'm thinking about and stuff are an interesting way to make sure that I can reflect on this time period and remember that it wasn't, you know, just one super boring period of time. Totally. I think we've had a couple other people say the same thing just as a way to synthesize your thoughts and just speak more clearly about things and probably just doing it for other mental health reasons. I think that's it's a good idea. Next one, aside from having to say no all the time, what's the worst part about venture? Let's see. Yeah, I think it's probably, it's an obvious part of the job, but I think having these really like long feedback loops is pretty challenging. Like it, it's, I think for, especially as a junior person where you're making, you're trying to help make long-term decisions without having seen like a full cycle of anything. I think it's just tough, right? Like the job of getting to conviction without any positive or or negative feedback, like in the market is tough. It's hard to grapple with that sometimes. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And it's like the catch 22. It's you want to build a brand for yourself so that more people refer you or refer, refer other founders to you. So you're writing your thoughts on what is working, what is not working, but you don't actually get that true feedback for yeah. five, 10 years. It's tough. I don't know if there's a way around it, but it's always interesting to hear how other people are thinking about it. All right, next one, we got two more. So best piece of advice for junior VCs or those aspiring to break into venture? I think it's probably just, I think a lot of the stuff that at least junior VCs do, anyone could do. It's not, we have like, access to some super cool proprietary software or anything. I feel like a lot of the stuff I do is like spending time on the internet and then spending time talking to people. And a lot of that is pretty accessible to everyone. So I I would just recommend basically just invest in really learning about one or two areas, basically play the part of a VC if you even like it. And then I think that puts you in a good spot to, to convince other people that you can do the job well. Yeah. Depth over breadth contrary to popular belief all right last one who's a mentor of yours that you'd want to give credit to yeah i I think certainly at at canaan one of my colleagues rafe has been a super helpful mentor i think specifically in this weird year of trying to navigate being early in venture and not necessarily going into the office and seeing anyone he's definitely been super helpful and then i think you know i think the other good thing is like a lot of like wisdom around being successful in like venture and just more broadly for young professionals is like now easier to access. Like people write about it, people talk about it. So I, I feel I broadly owe the internet quite a bit. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Cool, man. I think that's all that I have unless Tyler has anything else or you have any other last minute questions for us. No, I think I'm all good. Also, I want to, I want to two things. One, that last response of like shouting out the internet fire. No one's ever said that. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was actually sick. <laughs> and then two, man, who do you want to see on the uh, Confluence podcast? Yeah, uh, definitely a few people I think would be interesting. One of my friends, Wens, who's at, over at Emergence. Let's see. I think Priyanka at Workbench, especially around data. She writes a lot of Super interesting stuff. Rack at OpenView. A lot of folks, happy to follow up offline, but 
Yeah. A lot of people doing some really cool stuff, man. Those three are actually people who like are at who are at funds that are on our target list right now. Just because we really love the work they're doing. If you get intro to those people, that would be like pretty sick. Yeah, so, yeah. Happy to make any of those. Thank you, brother. I guess that's it for us. Peace, everybody. Huge thanks again to Nandu for coming on this week. We hope that each of you are able to pick up something valuable from this talk. If you're looking to get in touch with Nandu, we've linked his social info along with his blog, Substack, within the description below. For Confluence members, you can access his contact info within the directory. For next steps, if you're an investor and have not already signed up to join, we encourage you to check out our website at www.confluence.vc to submit your info to become a member. If you have any feedback for us, please feel free to reach out directly either to Tyler at tyler at gpv.com or myself at clay at muckercapital.com. Hope to hear from you all soon.